Hello and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I've got a guest with me, Ian, and hopefully we're going to talk about some topics for uh, detection and response, those kinds of things that we, we haven't yet covered in this podcast. So I'm pretty excited for today's episode. But hello, Ian. Why don't you give us a, a little introduction to yourself? Good afternoon. Thank you. Will do. Um, my name is Ian Murphy. I am Vice President for EMEA and co-founder of a company called Elementrix. We are a managed detection and response service provider. And we kind of take over from where managed security service providers leave off with the uh, advanced detection of malware and human adversaries that have already bypassed your current control set. Awesome. And your company name is a little bit unusual, isn't it? It's, it's letters. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's uh, it's spelt L-M-N and then T-R-I-X. So some people call it Lemontrix. Some people call it Lemontrix. Some people don't know what to call it and just ask, how do you pronounce it? It's uh, L-M-N-Trix. Awesome. So Lemontrix. 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 What do you guys do? So you mentioned... Um, kind of handing off from from security service providers so it's that is that post breach stuff i i, I think uh, part of it is a lot of what mssps have offered in the past or of or of uh claimed to offer has never materialized mm-hmm. so i've run and been involved in managed security services since about 2000 and the sales tactic and the sales process has always been Give me everything, give me all your data, mm-hmm. and I'll find a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that has failed to materialize. There's just more hay, there's just more noise, and actually trying to get to that needle or trying to get to the signal within the noise becomes an ever-decreasing circle of of, of just uh, false positives, more, uh, more alerts, more incidents, and people just being anesthetized to that information. So what we do uh, is we try and take it a step further beyond that. We try not to rely on logs. I make a big thing, if you've seen any of my other pontifications on LinkedIn or or on other podcasts, I make a big thing if the answer's not always in the logs. Mm -hmm. You know, what if an attacker is uh, evading being put in the logs or where still is clearing up their traces Mm -hmm. from being put in the logs? How do you find them then? So we use a bunch of different uh, tools and tactics backed up by uh, experts to go on the front foot offensively and go after the attackers or go after the malware where they where we know they bypass those control sets that are currently out there. So less reliance on, on logging. Correct. Correct. Which is why every seam vendor in the world hates my guts. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there has been, certainly for the last few years, a, a reliance on that, right? That the problem is always seen as we need to gather more and more logs and eventually we will get the answer somehow. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I tell a story often enough uh, that people will probably be fed up if they have heard it before. It's the over-optimistic child who wakes up on the birthday to find a room full of horse shit and they just optimistically keep digging and digging and digging in the horse shit. The parents ask why and he turns around to him and says, well, all this horse shit, there's got to be a pony somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, that makes that. It makes a lot of sense. So um, so we're taking uh, logs out of the equation or having less reliance on logs and we're somehow coming up with a solution that, that finds adversaries without that reliance. How does that work? So, so 
I've, I've got to contextually uh, make the point here that logs are useful and logs are useful for certain things. They're definitely useful for post-breach forensic analysis. They're definitely useful to see uh, retrospectively if there's been a zero-day attack or there's been a zero-day announced, if you can go over those logs and find traces of where that zero day may have been in your network previously, logs are really useful for that. They can be useful for the insider threat as well because generally the insider threat is a lot less capable of what a skilled attacker may be. They may utilise insiders to get in, but actually the insider can be a bit more clunky and can leave more traces that can be detectable in logs. But essentially how, how we do it is... We've built our own set of tools, our own set of uh, intellectual property within those tool sets, and we back everything off to a human being. So we have uh, tuned those tool sets. We've built an architecture that we overlay on a customer's network, so we don't tell them to remove anything they've currently got. In fact, what they currently have helps remove a lot of the noise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go hunting on a uh, network that we know has been validated by our architects that we've brought in by the tools that are tuned in a specific way to look for specific instances of different types of attackers and attacks. So different type of threat actors, different type of threat vectors. So we will then go after that and we'll go after it in the places where they may be hiding. So we'll look at the malware-less type of attacks, we'll look at the fileless type of attacks, we'll look at how they try to remain hidden on networks, where they remain hidden, how they try and maintain persistence on the network, uh, using operating system tools, a technique called living off the land. Mm-hmm. So so, so we'll use all of those, which isn't, none of it is startlingly new and none of it hasn't been known before. And it's almost like the Eric Morecambe sketch of people have been playing all the right notes, not necessarily in the right order. Mm. But actually through dedication, experience, hard work, effort and fully understanding the modus operandi of the people who would want to gain access to your crown jewels, we have a better um, a better chance of detecting them and actually reducing those false positives. So instead of a customer coming into a multitude of alerts of failed logins or internal port scans or things like that with no context to it, we can actually bring the context. We can give them more of a expert analysis of what's actually happening on their network. So is that just through through your knowledge of the kinds of things that attackers are generally doing or is this, are you leading into like threat intelligence type stuff here? So so it's it's a combination of everything. So if if I look at the, the six different elements we bring to bear, uh, we bring network threat hunting, we bring endpoint detection response and endpoint threat hunting as well. We have our own threat intelligence feed, which combines everything you would imagine from a commercial sense, plus stuff we've gained over the past 20 years or so. Uh, we have uh, deception techniques, mm-hmm. again, our, our own IP that, that, that we've built. Um, we have deep and dark web reconnaissance. So we've been um, crawling, spiding the deep and dark web, uh, we understand the the different places where certain uh, certain people hang out, um, and we we have a collection of data that that allows us to not only look at it statically. So if somebody comes to us and says, "Here's our domain, mm-hmm. what do you know about this?" or "What does the dark web know about this?" so we can show them that statically, but we can do it on a dynamic basis as well. We have three full time employees um, sat on there do, doing their thing, what, what they do. 
you know, and and then we have uh, advanced network threat detection, which is a combination of different elements that you would normally find across several different mm-hmm. product sets. But we we build that into a virtual sensor. We stick it on spam ports, and and it allows us to see the multitude of different malwares that are currently being missed by uh, by the detection tools in place for for whatever reason that may be. Could be that they're just not classifying it as malware. It could be that they've been tuned out to it. Uh, it could be that they're not looking specifically for those type of things. So so it gives us if if we start with a clean slate, if we don't start with the business problem that the customer has that they need to solve. If we start with a point of view of how does an attacker think, how do they get in, how do they move around, how do they hide their tracks, we've got half a chance of catching them. That sounds good. Uh, we use a, a phrase there that I don't think we've used on this podcast though before. Um, threat hunting. What is threat hunting? So hmm, threat threat hunting is a technique that more often than not turns up very little it's a soul destroying technique but once you <laughs> once you uh, once you master it it can be it can be a wonderful wonderful mine of information you know threat threat hunting i suppose at at its heart is intrusion analysis at the end of the day it's understanding or having a mentality that you've been breached and it's going on the front foot on the hunt around your network to find out where those breaches happen so you need a you need a critical thinking mind you're not reliant on just a tool or one type of approach. You've got a bunch of approaches. And you're actually then uh, marrying it to the different levels of the kill chain because different threat actors, different adversaries, different victims in different uh, uh, different elements of the kill chain react in, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So you are then using the data that's on the network. Now, here's where Log's useful, right? So if you're going to uh, threat hunt and you've got you're building a hypothesis, so you're building an idea of what you want to look for, uh, you may then want to once you're trying to flesh that hypothesis out, you may want to pivot to logs that you've collected previously. That's a great use case for a seam or a syslog or a collection device or whatever it may be. So you can pivot and then ask more questions. So you're asking the from a threat hunting point of view, I suppose you're asking the what, why, when, where, and how type of questions and you're building that into the network with a critical mind and a human mind behind it we'll get onto machine learning and ai in a bit no <laughs> doubt um to, to to come out with an outcome and that outcome could be yes that's a valid hunt we'll build that into our system or no it's not a valid hunt we'll have to keep going on until we get one you know it's uh, i suppose the example is like edison and the light bulb he failed ten thousand times before he did the light bulb that everybody knows and loves nowadays so Threat hunting is very similar, you know, and and everybody has their own model on it. You know, we have our telemetry and our data that we collect from the six different elements I mentioned before. We also have our threat hypothesis, which builds and uses the diamond model at the different stages of the kill chain. So how would a how would a company begin looking at threat hunting? If this is a new phrase, they've just heard your introduction and it sounds good to them, where would you start? So it... it this, this is the perennial problem. This is this is why I fear things like intrusion detection systems or seams fail constantly because we have companies who who do want to have a do-it-yourself approach, mm-hmm. but the do-it-yourself approach seems to be outweighed more to to companies who think right we can get 
we can get this guy, he's, or, or, or this woman, they're, they're the IT geek and we'll give them that role and give them the courses and they'll be an expert in, in a week. You know what, to, to be competent and to be really good at threat hunting, it's, it, it's not just one thing. You, you, need a, you need a long and a deep experience on it. You need to understand TCP IP for one start. So many, so many people I cross in this industry who don't understand networking at a basic level is, is unbelievable. You know, so, and unfortunately, I've been in the industry over 25 years. One of the first things I did was was try and learn networking or try and understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, gives you an idea of how people move about and, and how mm-hmm. people uh, manipulate different things within the packets and the data headers to, to do what they need to do. Um, so, so you need a solid networking and understanding. You need a solid understanding of security tools and what they do and what they don't do, more importantly. You need to be to see behind the vendor bullshit of mm-hmm. those security tools as well. So when a vendor says machine learning, AI powered, next generation, shiny blinky light stuff, you need to have enough of a of of an experience to go, yeah, I'm I'm not drinking that Kool-Aid. Just tell me what I'm getting from this and how yeah. this is gonna happen. So you not only need to be a critical thinker in what you're going after on the network, you need to be uh, a critical analyst when it comes to understanding what the telemetry is te- saying you or what the vendor's saying that the telemetry is going to tell you. So so most people think they can fill this with a student out of university with an MSC. Sounds cheap. Sounds cheap. I, I, you know, it, and and it is, and, and I'm not, I, actually, I'm not decrying MSCs. It's, it's one of the favourite routes for a lot of people mm. into our, our industry now. Um, uh, but... They need to they need to be paired with with an experienced individual. You know, I, I my actual trade, which might make sense to people when they hear me talk, is is a mechanic, right? Mm-hmm. I, I did a four year mechanical apprenticeship. They didn't let me out on an engine straight away to go and fix stuff. I had to spend four years with a with an experienced individual showing me how to do it, showing me how not to do it, and also making my life hell for four years as well. <laughs> But you know, so 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 this idea of of, of a do it yourself approach, um, but but by all means have a go, but but don't go into it with the with the thinking that you can do it on the cheap, uh, and and it, and it, some magic will happen six months later. You know, if if you're lucky enough to get a uh, um, uh, an individual who who is passionate about security, who wants to learn, or go that extra mile themselves. Then, then you've got a chance, but you need to have them under the wing of somebody who knows what they're doing as well. And also, don't don't believe the hype either. Don't don't believe the hype from the vendor. Don't believe the hype that the salesman. Don't believe the the uh, demo that, that that you were shown in in the um, sales presentation. You know, get it on your network, play with it, try and break it, ask difficult questions of the SEs, the sales engineers, mm-hmm. or the systems engineers. That that's what they're there for. You know. I used to do that role myself as a pre-sales systems engineer or sales engineer or techie bitch as 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 they were known uh, lovingly um, when I worked for Symantec. And, and largely, more often than not, we were wheeled in and, and we were put in front of the customer and grilled and you had to know your stuff technically then. And if you didn't, you got fried, right? And, and, and it was game over. You couldn't. But once a sales guy got used to you knowing that you knew what you were talking mm. about, they would let you crack on with it. And actually their job then became <clears> easier. So so if if people want to start off on this, um, I, I, I suppose there's there's one of three avenues. Go and employ somebody experienced. Go and look at a service provider. I would say that obviously we're a service providers, yeah. but other service providers are available as well. <laughs> 
go and look at a service provider, or if you're going to buy a tool and then staff it internally, give you give your people internally the chance of success. You know, not only give them the training that they need, give them the time that they need, and try and pair them up with a mentor as well. And that could be somebody outside your company. You know, you could bring a contractor in who knows what they're talking about, short-term contract, and help them maybe get up to speed a, a little bit quicker. But don't un. Don't underestimate the work required and the experience required. And and don't also underestimate the costs that are sunk into that. So if you are going to buy a product and you're going to staff it, the product's going to cost X. The staff and the training and the experience and the time to get some real value is probably going to cost three or four times the product. Yeah, that's a, a thing I always think. Generally for us in the, in the context of pen testing, right, being, being our core service, some people say, you know, oh, well, if we want pen testing, we can just hire a pen tester, right? And we'll just do it all ourselves. Like, yeah, but if you, if you hire one person, then, you know, who are they going to bounce ideas off? What happens when they take leave or are sick or all of those kinds of things? So, Or, or, or even what happens when um, they've exhausted the features of Nessus and they may have to try a different tool, <laughs> you know? So, so many people think... Uh, pen testing is let's buy Nessus and let's run a scan and let's give them a report, no business context and and away we go. But the good pen testers and the ones that are worth their weight in gold are the ones who you can have those conversations with, are the ones that you can turn around and say, but what about this and what about that? Or I've heard about this. And will also go their extra mile as well. So they're not just giving you the output of the Nessus scan. There's a bunch of other tools they've got and there's some of their own techniques that they've built themselves as well. You know, some of the best pen testers I've ever worked with, um, a, 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 don't put them in front of customers, of course, <laughs> of course, lovingly said, um, but but B, just just amazing, amazing people for, with what they can do, you know, just, just really great. Sounds like specialists, doesn't it, when you say it like that? It, it's it's like anything, right? You don't buy a BMW and then take it round the corner to get service at your local garage. Or, or, or if you do, a you're a cheap ass, and b it's going to break down very <laughs> soon, right? Um, so so you're not going to invest all that money in a in a premium car and then get the local garage to do it. But is 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 the analogy? You know, yeah, yeah. I normally use. <laughs> so. So we started at, uh, logs are okay, they have a purpose, but they're not necessarily perfect. We moved on to talking about um, threat hunting and how that can be an awesome thing, but you've got to add context and you've got to have that kind of deep knowledge if you're abstracting away, then it doesn't help. Um, what about deception? Well, um, I was almost going to do the Little Britain look into the eyes, not around the eyes then type of... So, so deception for, for a lot of people just simply means honey pots, right, or honey nets. And they've been about for years. Mm -hmm. But there's a plethora of companies that have now grown up and, and commercialised them. You know, Trapex is one, Ativo is another, uh, Elusive is another. You know, we have our own uh, IP built in with deceptions as well. So, so, and and the main use case of, of deceptions uh, is to catch the human attacker on a network mm -hmm. or even the insider threat the east to west lateral movement and and you know done done correctly and done well they are indistinguishable from the normal network mm -hmm. done poorly it's it's quite obvious what it is it's quite obvious it's it's a honeypot um but they are a growing tool and a growing uh defensive layer in organizations now especially as 
more organizations are perimeterless. You know, there's 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 no boundaries. There's this concept of zero trust, but yet there's a lot of trust put in the supply chain and that's where everybody normally gets in the weakest link and all that. Um, you know, and, and and deceptions can be a unique tool in spotting that. So how does how does deception and, and threat hunting play together? Is this a thing a company would say, oh, we'd pick one or the other? Is it a thing you would deploy together or are they just unrelated? Uh, if everything's related, if it's getting you to the end point of a use case that you want to solve, right? And, and for us, those five or six use cases are solving alert fatigue and therefore dwell time, solving the human attacker on your network, solving the malware that is bypassing uh, your current control sets, uh, solving the the uh, ubiquitous uh, experience and expertise question, solving the post-breach analysis, and then also solving this fallacy of the answers in the logs. So it, it depends what you're going after and what that business need is. We use six different elements that that, that we combine together mm-hmm. and we operationalize, contextualize, and put a service wrapper around them. Um, a- anybody can build any of those six different elements, either by going to buy a product or or buy an individual service off, off other companies. I, I think they're complementary. Uh, I, I think threat hunting is is looking usually for a different type of, or, or trying to solve a different type of use case than deceptions. But actually, when you br- bring them together and blend them together, it gives you a a defense in depth approach that I don't believe currently exists today. Mm-hmm. And 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 let's be let's be clear here: this isn't magic. This is hard work, blood, sweat, and tears of techniques that have been about for years. So if you look at threat hunting and intrusion analysis and all that type of stuff, a lot of what threat hunters use is the is something called the diamond model of intrusion analysis, mm-hmm. where it looks at the, the infrastructure, uh, the adversary, the victim, and the capabilities of, of an event, of a threat, and you use those things to pivot to different, uh, different data sets and different type of, of techniques. Is that any different than intrusion detection systems of the past you know intrusion detection systems were a bit clunky they did come along and in a big fanfare and and offer to cure the world's ills from a security point of view when people got drowned out with the alerts that was coming out of them when people didn't realize that they had to tune it and had to spend time and have to give it love and water it and all that type of stuff you know and they got fed up with the shiny new toy and they just switched it off or turned the volume down so, so then, you know, when when the when the analyst firms, the Gartners, and that said IDS is dead, what did the what, what did the market do? It changed the D to a P. Didn't really change anything <laughs> in the product. It put it in line rather than just a just a passive type of uh, d- device, and it called it prevention. You know, it it's it's nothing of what we're doing now is different than what probably we've done in the past or had the ability to do in the past. The difference is, I suppose, is the approach and the evolution of how we go after the attackers and the bad things that we assume are, are mm-hmm. on our network. You know, I talk about it being a arms race all the time where generally the attackers are two or three steps ahead. And people say to me, do you really think that that's skilled? And 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 I do think they, they know more about networking and ways to get into to networks than than we do, but more often than not, it's still somebody leaving a back door open in the network, right? It's still somebody not patching something. It's still a misconfig. It's still somebody not encrypting an S3 bucket. You know, it's still stupidity and there's mm-hmm. no patch for stupidity, right? 
Yeah, I, I do get that a lot on, on the pen testing side of things where people say, you know, are, are the attackers better than the defenders? And I don't generally believe that's the case, but it's sometimes it's a bit easy being the attacker, you know, where you can... Um, I guess the way that I would I would phrase it is, if you were to tell a defensive team that an attack is coming, that doesn't necessarily help them. Because when they're seeing all of this data coming through, all these alerts, like you said, they still can't necessarily tell which is the attacker, which is background noise. True. Talked a lot about alert fatigue there. True, which is why I, I draw a lot on my football background. So I used to play professional and semi-professional football, mm-hmm. and I was a defender, I was a centre-half. Or, or a central defender. So, so the move into cyber defence is, is so clear. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and spending time in, in the Ministry of Defence as well. It just um, it gives you a warped sense of reality, <laughs> to be quite honest. But I, I, I think that the point I was trying to make, the most success I ever had as a footballer was when, we, when I played in teams that were more attacking than defensive. And I've written a couple of articles on parking the bus and the best form of attack is, uh, best form of defence is attack and and it's really true if I'm going to defend for 90 minutes against a quality set of centre forwards I'm going to be really lucky if I don't concede a goal and that's the problem I think you have with the defenders versus attackers conversation they only need to get lucky once you need to be on your toes for, for the nine, full 90 minutes you switch off once and it's, it's game over you on nil down so you're always on the back foot then So so what we do and how we do it puts people on that front foot. We don't wait passively for things to happen. We go and look in the network and and the areas of operating systems and memory and all that type of stuff where attackers inhabit or hide or where malicious code will inhabit or hide or the types of techniques they'll use to be evaded. And we'll go after that purposely rather than sitting back waiting for some device to flash red and say, there's a problem here, please go investigate. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, a thing you mentioned earlier, though, we were talking about uh, the use cases for deception, and you mentioned a reduction of dwell time. What's dwell time? Okay, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm my apologies, I'll, I'll fall into industry terms uh, every now and again. So, so dwell time is the time between uh, something happening on your network, say an attack again, an entry or malicious code landing on your network, and that being detected. And it depends who you listen to. There's several different statistics out there. I think FireEye offer about 99 or 100 days. Mm. IBM offer about 187 days or something like that. And Gartner offer about 246 days, which should tell you that nobody really knows. But what it should tell you is that whether it's 100 days or whether it's 246 days, it's a long time for somebody to be sat on a network undetected, especially when I think the... What's the record for gaining access and compromise of a system by the... The Bear APT in Russia, I think it was like 16 minutes or something yeah. like that. So when you consider that, and when you also consider the costs of cleaning up the activities of having a having an attack or a post-breach attack, the Aberdeen uh, analysts uh, did, a, did, did an analysis, funny enough for analysts to do an analysis. <laughs> Makes sense, right? Um, they, they they did uh, an analysis of the costs to an organisation. If you can catch it within the first uh, few hours, you have a 96% reduction in the cleanup costs. If it goes beyond 60 days, there's no reduction in the cleanup costs. You match that to the, the, the most optimistic of 99, 100 days from FIRA, you're, you're 30 days in, in the red there, mm-hmm. right? You know, 30, 40 days. 
that's my math as a Liverpool comprehensive coming through. So, so you education. <laughs> yeah. we, we did the three R's at school, reading, writing and robbing. Um, <laughs> so, so, so you've got a gap there of, of at least 40 days. You know, and more often than not, the indication of the attack doesn't come from any internal systems. It comes from an external body, pen testers, mm. red teamers. Yeah. You know, those you, you, you guys who come in and do that excellent work go, oh, you, you, you've got a problem over here. Oh, that, is, that is actually on our to-do list for, for future podcasts. We've got an entry that just basically says, uh, do you ever find attackers when doing pen tests? Because obviously that's, that's not what we're there for. No. But yeah, absolutely right. Sometimes you do pop a system and then you're like, oh, someone else is here. What, 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 what's also in, interesting is, is and, and I see, see it a lot, so, so when I talk to customers about what we do and how we do it and why... The ven- why what they've been told by the vendors or what they've been told by their big managed security service provider isn't probably the whole truth and nothing but the truth. There's a bit of, ah, it sounds too good to be true. And I get that. <laughs> I really do get it because I'm, I'm big in snake oil salespeople and, and exposing them and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it's always, I'll put my money where my mouth is. And more often than not, I'll say to customers, if we're going to come in and do this, one of the best values you'll get out of this is if you employ a red team and mm. exercise and we'll catch him. And we always catch him. You know, we caught a really big well-known, not you guys, we caught a really big, not that you're not really well-known, I mean a really big globe, you know. To, I've dug Someone's my, famous, I've, not you. I've dug myself a hole there, haven't I? I can't get out. So, so we Don't caught... Don't you know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got photos and everything. Um, and and we caught them within seven and a half minutes of them beginning their, um, their, their red team and exercise, which thoroughly nosed off the CIO who spent a lot of money mm. on them. But also what happened was they had a really big global well-known MSSP as well who didn't see them three and a half weeks later. <laughs> and they came to us to ask us what could these guys do to be noticed? So we had to tell them how to turn the noise up so they could be noticed by their managed services provider who they were spending a lot of money on. Now, that, is, that isn't to say we're great, they're not great. The point I'm trying to say is that what they look and the use cases thereafter is not solving that use case of human adversities on your network. So if people aren't aware of what a red team is, it's a it's a bunch of guys, people who who know exactly what they're doing, who know how to evade controls, who will go in and test a customer's defences on mm-hmm. their network. And their ultimate goal is to stay hidden from detection and then come back with a bunch of reconnaissance, a bunch of information, maybe even a bunch of data that they've been able to glean and take off the network and with the with the idea that you then present that to the customer and the customer goes oh my god so i need to fix this 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 this, this and and you improve their defenses mm-hmm. from that point of view see i learned from the dwell time thing i've just explained what red teaming is there no it's Maybe, good it's good um one of the things that, that you didn't mention in dwell time that i always think is a, a very interesting and the kind of thing that sometimes customers don't think of is if your dwell time is 100 days 200 days whatever it is but your log rotation is 30 days. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You might uh, discover that something has occurred and then not be able to tell anything further. Correct. And 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 that's a really good point, actually. So so I don't do that because I don't deal in logs, right? So, But it is a very good point. Not but, big on lumber. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> but but the other thing about it is is that um, there's a cost to storing logs. There's a cost mm. to collecting them. There's a cost to storing them. And this log rotation talks to that very point. So if you've got a data analytics platform or a seam that is charging you on the logs that you're collecting, um, 
it's it's going to cost you an arm and leg. So you're making a budgetary decision before you can get to any kind of security-based decision. So cost is coming first, of course. You know, so so I think it it it, it become it's it's a slight self-defeating sales argument that let's collect all the logs, but we can't collect them because it's a little bit too expensive. You know, so so you're missing out on something somewhere, and then you can understand why attackers do go undetected. You know, it's not that people are stupid or products are bad. You know, but people people do jump on my LinkedIn feed to say you're saying this and blah blah blah, and I'm like. Listen to the context, listen to what I'm saying, listen to the use case I'm talking about. I'm talking about specific use cases. If you want to come on as a vendor of somebody who makes the money out of collecting logs, listen to me first before you try and jump all over me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing that I've noticed, though, with with conversations for, for these kinds of products is uh, people... People used to say that, oh, um, automation's great, and if you've got uh, so many logs, for example, that you, you can't go through them, then you, you need to automate that to make any uh, effectiveness. And then people change that to, oh, automation's not very good, computers are stupid, you need human analysts looking at it, so back to humans. And then and then now people are saying, oh, no, machines are much better than people because now we have machine learning. How does machine learning affect things? Oh, so so I think it, it it just focuses the mind. I'm glad you use machine learning instead of uh, artificial intelligence. I was at a presentation recently where advanced it was... statistics. <laughs> that's what I want to call it. A series of if statements. So and, and and essentially that that is right. So so machine learning. What's machine learning? It's it's an algorithm, right? It's an algorithm meant to trawl through data to get to a point. So it has many different fancy terms, regressive, non-regressive, linear, non-linear, all of that really good stuff. But at the end of the day, it's a, it, it's a value to help you determine what is good or bad. There's several different things that can go wrong there. How do you know the data you're feeding it to help it learn is great data to be learned from? Mm-hmm. You know, so it, 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 it's like anything. So if you're giving it garbage in to make some learning, you're giving it garbage out. That, that's, that's what you're going to get. And the other side of it is, how do you know that the algorithm is as foolproof as the vendor's claiming? You know, there's a very famous and a very well-known attack on a vendor that makes a big thing about machine learning for their EDR, AV type product, where it got owned. It got owned because somebody understood the gaming bias that they used Mm -hmm. to classify the files that were being checked. So instead of classifying, you know, a motet or all of all of those good malicious content as minus nine nine nine, I think it was, it was plus nine nine nine. So they were allowing it to fly through the network un- undetected. So, so don't for one minute think it's not fallible. Uh, use it as a tool, like any other tool, but maybe have a, a couple of backups to that. Maybe use different algorithms from different products. You know, it's, it, it's the old, probably the old uh, thinking from you know, the early 2000s about dual firewall and all multiple AV vendors, you get the best of all worlds, worlds you know. It yeah, comes yeah. back. Nothing we do in this industry is in- innovative. It's it's evolutionary. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything's revolutionary either. It's it's a it's a play on the stuff from the past. Even Zero Trust is a play on the stuff from the past, right? Nothing's, nothing's new in what we do, I find. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just cynical. That's, <laughs> that's probably what it is. I think the, the point that you make about the, the training set, for machine learning is incredibly important. And I think it's a thing that I've been hearing for a long time as well, not for machine learning, but we hear things like um, you go do a, a pen test with a customer and they'll say, oh, we, you know, we've just found out that our IPS was in learning mode. And if it was in blocking mode, then it, it would have blocked you. So we're going to put it into blocking mode now. It's like, 
what after it's just watched me do a pen test. Yeah. And now it thinks that that's normal traffic. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, the um, I've worked with big customers. I've worked with big SIs who have had IPSs on their network that were forever in learning mode. And the reason that they were forever in learning mode is they were petrified that they would block mm. some kind of business valid traffic. So when you've got that type of mentality that you're going to allow everything in, you're already on 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 a loser as as a defender. Your one leg is tied behind or one arm's tied behind your back, you know. So so you're already uh, stymied be, be, before you begin. And it goes back. It goes back years. In fact, you know. But if I think back to my early days in when I came out of the Ministry of Defence, working with the Accent toolset, which Semantic then bought. You know, they, they came up with a an IDS firewall combo where if the IDS saw something at the back, mm-hmm. it would it would harden the firewall to that type of attack or source source IP address or, or whatever it was. But so many people were so nervous of putting that in because you would just do yourself a, a, a you just do your own internal denial of service, right? Yeah. It's so it, it and, and that probably brings brings the conversation onto things like so, you mm. know, so so the that kind of automation side of things. Again, it's 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 complex. It's it's not an area of expertise for me, to be quite honest. Um, but but it's it's complex, and if anything's complex, leave it to the experts. You know, don't think you can bring it on site. And um, you're too young to remember a Haynes manual or what a Haynes manual is. But it used to be how you could service your own car at home. The, the cars I've grown up with, they drive themselves now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I Ouch. presume if it ever breaks, it'll drive itself to a garage. Ouch. Gosh, how to make somebody feel really old? Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> but but you know that's that and and anything that's complex, anything that requires a, a lot of expertise, mm-hmm. um, if you, if you want to have a pop at it as a hobbyist, hobbyist, by all means have a pop at it, but realise that you're probably going to have to call the professionals in at some point. I think it's really funny when you mention uh, you know firewalls, uh, self blocking, and things like that. IPS linked into firewalls. Because I, I hear that a lot with customers when they're looking at any kind of SOC service, any kind of uh, defensive uh, product. And the conversations are often, um, oh, what would you like us to do if we detect something? Would you like us to automatically stop it or would you like us to alert you to it? And customers say, oh, no, no, you know, give us a call, let us know, and then we'll make a decision. It's like, okay, it's Sunday, it's 3 a.m. I'm going to give you a call and ask you what, what you'd like us to do about it. So, yeah, there's, there's this fear of... Um, Automation on the, on the blocking side of things, but yeah. hu- humans are slow, aren't they? Oh, it, it, they they are. Um, we we used to do when when I looked after Symantec socks for them in Amir, um, we we used to regularly test our analysts on that with some overzealous on calling people mm-hmm. with some underzealous, mm-hmm. and it's trying to pitch that right and get the right training for the analysts so they are confident in their ability to pick the phone up and ubiquitously. Why is it three o'clock in the morning all the time? I've never used a different time other than 3 o'clock in the morning, right? Everybody uses 3 a.m. It's brilliant. Yeah. Is that when everybody gets in off a night out of, of a Sunday morning? Is is that what it's indicative of? I think no matter what the context is, you, you're not at your best at 3 a.m. If you've <laughs> just got in true. from a nightclub, you're very not at true. your best. If you've been asleep for a few hours, you're probably yeah. not at your best. Yeah, you, you're probably right. But but it, it is, um, it's all fun and games till somebody loses an eye, right? And and that's essentially it. People can Is that give a feature you, of your product? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We poke people in the eyes for stu- being stupid. No. So um it, it is essentially um 
everybody likes the idea of an escalation profile mm. until you're the person on the end of the phone, right? That's being it. That that it's being escalated to, and then you've then got to be sure that you're escalating the right thing, you know. So that yeah. that's where the poke in the eye comes from. Yeah, and God, both being the person who's being woken up at three a.m. and also being the person having to wake them up, it's not yeah. good for either, is it? Absolutely, it, it, it isn't. You know, and, and we, we used to get a few of those grumpy calls. Um, but, but essentially what, what we used to find from a SOC perspective was that the first 12 or so months were a goldmine for MSSPs. But after that, it kind of tailed off and the alerts kind of got less and less and less and it was more and more the same. And then customers questioned whether that was the right service provider and they'd moved to another service provider to get that leap for the first 12 months and then they'd tail off. You know, because because actually, um, that talks to the that talks to the point I made earlier on about needles in haystacks. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as needles in haystacks. And and ev- every sock in the world would love you to throw all of your logs at them because that would that would make the salesman's year and they'd be living in Cabo for a year or something like that off the off the commission from that. It's it's just impractical to do. Yeah. So we've mentioned threat hunting. We've talked about deception. What else should people be thinking about? Uh, threat intel is a big thing, um, and 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 it's been a big thing for a very long time. Um, but people just haven't understood what it means or how to monetize it. I think uh, I I always tell people that it has to be timely, it has to be proportionate, and it has to be appropriate to what you want. So it has to be able to feed the devices or feed your analysts the right information at the right time about the right things. So you need a wide swathe of intel from different corners of, of the internet, whether they be commercial feeds, whether mm-hmm. they be product vendor feeds, whether they be um, internet chatter or, or uh, sorry, dark web chatter um, or forums on the dark web that are chatting about certain things. So so you need a, you need a wide breadth of that. And that only comes with time, you know, by all means, start with a commercial organization, by all means, start with, you know, your anomalies of those mm-hmm. guys of this world. Um, other other threat intel feeds are available, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not getting any commission from anomaly for this. Um, and and then take it from there. Don't just use that as a single source of truth. You know, use use many different things. Build your own, go and, mm-hmm. go and find... You know, go go and have a look at what open source stuff is out there. Yeah. You know, go go and have a look at uh, the vendors you've got on your network. Go and get feeds from them. You know, vulnerability, all, all that type of stuff, and start to build your own and start to gain information and knowledge about it. You know. So, for those of us who've only ever dwelled on the bright surface web, what's a deep web and what's a dark web? Oh, okay. Um, so both terms interchangeably used mm-hmm. nowadays. Um, the 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 deep web is is the underlying overflow, the overspill of what you see as a kind of high level internet. That's the peer to peer network and the the um, the uh, drop boxes, the internet, all that type of stuff. And then the dark web is is the layer beneath that, the netherworld that you can generally only get to via special browsers, where anonymity is kind of guaranteed. Um, where you can then buy and sell and deal in all manner of dodgy and suspicious and horrible things, as well as the quite boring and inane and stupid as well. You know, uh, everybody thinks it's a it it's a place where you can buy 
drugs and and whatsoever it probably is um but it's also a place where you can buy you know just stupid tat so um enter it at your peril but you you would probably need something like tor to get mm-hmm. in the, the the onion um browser which guarantees the uh, anonymity probably what most people don't know is it started off as a US Navy um, yeah, project. it certainly did. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I don't think that's so well known. No, no, it isn't. Same as the internet from a DARPANET point of view back in the late 60s. Uh, the US Navy wanted a way for their intelligence geeks to speak to each other. That wasn't over the internet. That was hidden from everybody else. They knew the consequences of it. And we've got the dark web. So when people talk about privacy and being able to break these cells and break into this technology and stuff like that. But listen, you know, it's 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 a double, double-edged sword. You know, with privacy comes a cost of security to other people who would use it for their own advantages and for things that morally we do not accept and, and do not like. But, but you know, that, that's been facilitated by one of the biggest governments in the world. Mm. Right. So I think um, for for some people who may be listening in and they're saying, okay, so there's this there's this threat intelligence thing, and you're going to look on the the dark or deep web or whatever, and you're going to sit in those chat rooms with those hackers. Maybe one of the outputs of that will be, oh, this this hacking group is planning to attack this company. How is that useful to somebody? Well, if if you're the company, it's it's going to be useful. What what we generally tend to find for our customers, what we can see on the dark web about them is uh, data that's being exposed about them, mm. a lot of credentials. Uh, if there's any documentation being passed about, if there's any identities being sold, if there's any conversations around their say VIPs within their organization, you know, so we can gain a, a lot of data. We did. Uh, an example, we, we did a, a bit of work for a healthcare company. They uh, wanted us to find out exactly what the dark web held on them. So we have a, a four-stage process, but we essentially went on the dark web. We did a lot of searches. We did a lot of uh, looking, a lot of lifting up of, of <laughs> carpets and things like that. And we came back with a 2,000-page report on on what we found, you know, uh, schematics for new hospitals they were planning um, MRI scans of customers, uh, photocopies of checks of customers, payment details of customers. So, you know, it, it, it is a goldmine of information for for a, a starting point for somebody to launch an attack against a specific company. And and, and it's not just that, you know, it's, it's its own marketplace. You know, you can buy malware on there, you can buy exploit tools, tailored as a service, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the stuff that we see you know, security as a service or platform as a service or, or, or whatever it is from cloud providers, there's all of that stuff on the deep and dark web as long as you know where to look. You know, some you can't just walk into any forum, of course, you know, because it's like a closed club. You need to be invited into some of them. Some of them are really suspicious. There's other three-letter three letter acronym agencies that are, that are monitoring as well. So, you know, enter it at your own peril. You can't, as, as a newbie, you'll probably be found out pretty quickly. Um, but I think there's a really good, there's a really good uh, Audible series on the dark web, and I can't remember who did it now. Shame on me. <laughs> but it's, it's about an eight or nine um, series thing, and it's done by a UK journalist. Really interesting. People want a bit more info about where it came from, the types of things that are on there, what you can buy on there, how you get into it, and things like that. It's it's a really good primer for it. 
I think uh, a thing you mentioned there is uh, it's really important because it's it's something that not a lot of people think of. So you mentioned, um, you know, attackers just selling specific capabilities, you know, selling malware or, or um, selling other tools. I think um, sometimes people, when they think of cybercrime, think of like one mastermind doing the whole thing from hacking to stealing the data to selling the data to money laundering. And um, you could be really good at writing malicious software and not very good at money laundering. Yep. But you can just, you know, get get that one capability and sell that capability as a service. I sure. think it's not a lot not a lot of people consider that. No, no, I know. It, it's it's I'm, I'm not uh, recommending that as a no, career choice. <laughs> no, ab- absolutely not. You you will probably end up in a in a one one piece pajama suit with arrows all over it because you will you will get caught at some point. You know, uh, I think one of the one of the great books about the dark web and the and the beginnings of it is the Silk Road. Mm, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so about uh, the Dread Pirate Robert. So if anybody's ever watched the Princess Bride, they'll understand where that comes <laughs> from. But you know, it, it's it's the story of how he set up the Silk Road, how he how he administered it, how he got wealthy through it, and eventually how he got caught by it. It's a wonderful, wonderful story, actually. If anybody ever wants to to read it, it's brilliant. I'm not sure we can set homework on the podcast, but I would like to if we can. <laughs> we'll pick it up in the in the next podcast. Everyone, go go read that story. It's it's pretty interesting. Yes, it is. Along with uh, the cuckoo's egg, I always recommend the cuckoo's Cliff egg. Stoll. Right, Cliff Stoll. Yeah, um, brilliant. I, I I think I read it in in the in the later '90s or something like that. It's a great introduction to anybody who's coming into our industry of how how an inquiring, inquisitive mind can end up tracking down an East German attacker mm. that's got into NORAD. I think it, it, it plays a lot, actually, to what we were talking about before of threat hunting, right? It's like, oh, there's some unusual activity, and it's like, well, what does that actually mean? Right? Correct, correct. And, and and that's it. It's it's having that. A, a, a lot of it, I, I say, is, is having that good feel that something's not quite right. I don't know what it is, but something's not quite right. And I've always had that throughout my career. I've always been able to go, uh, yeah, that doesn't sound right. So you're using a lot of great terms and <laughs> fancy Six Sigma this and blah, 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 that, but it doesn't quite feel right. It feels as if you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. So then I just play the ignorant Scouser card with them, right, and, and get them to explain it in simple, simple monosyllabic uh, words. Awesome. Um, gosh, I think we've been through an awful lot of kind of detection and response stuff there, haven't we? We've done threat hunting, we've done deception, we've done threat intelligence. Is, is there anything else that's key? I, I think you've you mentioned the word there, response. Response is key. And whenever anybody comes to either sell you a product or sell you a service, the the output and what you're going to do with that is all important. Mm. Because uh, if I'm telling you daily that you're under attack, but you've got nobody to do anything with it, it's pointless buying a service because you're not going to do anything with it, right? Um, so you really do need a shit-hot response team internally to be able to do something with the information. You know, and, and good service providers or good vendors can help you with that and can help you get the team up to speed. But actually, it allows you to invest I'm going to say this incorrectly, I think. Invest less in your staff, and I don't mean it that way. I mean, you don't have to go out and buy a ready-made expert to do certain things, but you can have a response-type team that can grow with experience, probably easier than if you want to go and get a threat hunter and do it internally, because really good service providers or or, or really good uh, MDR service providers will give you the outcomes of where it is, 
what happened, how it got in, how it moved about, what process IDs are associated with it, what applications it spawned, which element of the kill chain it's in, where it is now, what to look for, what to do, how to do it, and what to do when you find it. You know, you need that type of, rather than, um, hey, there's an alert here, it's a bit red, go and have a look over there. You need a bit more meat on the bones. A bit so, more context. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And and that's important on, on the response because customers have to take a responsibility in this as well. You know, it's not just outsourcing everything to a service provider and therefore you outsource the risk. It's still your risk to manage, right? It's still your data. It's still your network. So you need to uh, you need to have that partnership, that trusted partnership with a third party if you're going to spend money on them. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's important if if you're going to get all of this information coming in that you can do something with it. Absolutely. O- otherwise, don't bother. D- don't bother. Switch everything off, and <laughs> ignorance is bliss. Oh god. Until, until the ICO come around and stick your executives in jail or fine you four percent or whatever it is. Yeah, huge right. figures now for yeah, fines. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Well, that that's everything from me. Do you do you have anything else you want to throw in? Do I have anything else? I've, I've given my book recommendations that I normally give. Again, I'm not on any kind of commission, but if you are listening, Cliff Stoll, you probably owe me an arm and a leg. Um, or an affiliate link. Yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> um, no, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I pontificate quite a bit on similar types of things. Um, check, check me out there. I will happily connect to anyone on LinkedIn, especially those people who, as soon as I connect to them, they want to sell me their services they are an absolute joy to deal with. <laughs> I'm saying that firmly tongue-in-cheek. Here's a little bit of a tip. If you connect to me on LinkedIn and you instantly sell me a service, I'm going to be polite and say no thanks, but in my mind I am physically punching you in the face. So send all of your uh, sales offers. Over, yeah. Over <laughs> yeah, that's what that's just done, isn't it? It's opened yeah, the floodgates. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely has. I'm gonna I'm gonna come up with some products and brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> buy this. It's a bowler hat with gloves. I don't know. Yes, buy it. <laughs> Just for winter. I don't know. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Ian, for coming in. My pleasure. And uh, one for the audience. Um, which which area we have covered do you think is the most important? Uh, is it is it threat hunting? Is it deception? What what is it that you're currently looking into? Let us know over social media, and we'll see you in the next podcast. <laughs>